0: uh dwell <clears throat> on this morning, is uh, the theme of the fullness of time. Mm. And I'm looking in particular at Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, which read, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. So we want to look at this theme of the fullness of time. You see there a statue of Augustus Caesar these are Augustus. You can have it around whichever way you like. And uh, the reason for that will become evident as we proceed. But before we look at Galatians 4, I want to look at Daniel chapter 2 and the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the great Colossus. And I've got it in sections or segments. You, O King, says Daniel, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue, or colossus if you like. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of pottery, traditionally clay, but I'll explain that shortly. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and pottery and crushed them. Then the iron, the pottery, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now the interpretation. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory, and wherever the sons of men dwell, wherever the sons of men dwell, uh, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of God. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron it will crush and break all those in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of pottery, partly of iron, It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have the toughness of iron. And inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it brittle, like pottery. and in the days of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but will itself endure forever Amen. the great god has made known to the king what will take place in the future the dream is sure and the interpretation is certain and we come to the new testament fulfillment and here galatians 4 comes into play now i say says paul as long as the heir is a child he does not differ at all from a slave although he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father so also we while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. I think he's referring to all the rights and procedures of uh, Jewish law. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And he goes on to uh, speak about how uh, he has sent forth the spirit of his son. So we're under guardians of the law, but now there's a new guardian, the Holy Spirit. Now in the vision of Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar, but in Daniel 2, there was a stone which crushed all those kingdoms. Now the stone is a fairly common motif or symbol of the coming Messiah. Have a look at some of these texts. Psalm 118 verses 22 and 3. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this is the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our lives. Yes. And our Lord quoted those words to the Jewish uh, religious leaders, particularly after relating the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21. And after relating the parable, Jesus continues, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Mm. And then you've got Peter. But first of all, Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be in haste. And Peter quotes those lines in 1st Peter, chapter 2. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be put to shame or disappointed. So there's two sides. There's the stone which is the object of faith to uh, a humble believer. And the same stone is what crushes the kingdoms of men and grinds them to power. All right, what's the interpretation of that image? Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel. 229 to 45. There's the image, the head of gold right down to the feet of iron and pottery. The head of gold, of course, is Babylon. And I put dates there from 605 to 539 BC. 605 when Nebuchadnezzar became king, 539 when the Empire of Babylon came to an end and passed to the second phase, the Medes and Persians. The chest and arms of silver is Medo-Persia from 539 to 331 B.C. 200 years, just a bit more. And then you have the thighs of bronze, which is Greece, 331 to 63 B.C starting with Alexander the Great and concluding ignominiously with a little-known king. Uh, (coughs) uh, And it passed to the Fourth Empire, Rome. But there are two phases to Rome. There's imperial Rome. I've dated that from 63, the year when the Roman general Pompey captured Judea and barged into the Jewish temple, much to the consternation of the chief priests. And so you have imperial Rome, which lasts until the year 476 AD, when Rome fell. And then phase two, you have the feet of Iron and Pottery which is Rome. Phase phase two, the nations of Western Europe from 476 to 1918, or perhaps 1945. More about that shortly, but I don't want to dwell on it. That's another. And then The stone cut without hands, the kingdom of Christ. And notice it strikes at the legs and feet. Now let's make some observations on this uh, image. First of all, the great colossus of Daniel 2 should be read in conjunction with the series of four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. I have a PowerPoint on that, but i uh, I go into that in a whole lot more detail. But the colossus portrays, on one hand, the diminishing glory of this succession of empires. It's almost like your Olympic gold, uh, Olympic medals, isn't it? There's the gold medal, there's the silver medal, and then there's the bronze medal. And i always uh, have a certain wrangling of, of within myself over fourth place. There should be a, 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 an iron medal or a stainless steel medal for fourth place. I mean, fourth place in the whole world for that particular event, whatever it happens to be. But, Anyway, that's just my little grog. <laughs> and the beasts in chapter seven describe the increasing ferocity and ruthlessness of these same empires. You finish up with a beast which is like nothing on earth. Secondly, the four world empires are really six. Since the fourth resolves into three phases the Iron Legs, Imperial Rome, the Iron plus pottery, the disparate states of Europe, and the Little Horn, speaking blasphemies, which you find in Daniel 7 verses 8 and 24 and 25, the final Antichrist. Thirdly, the final symbol of the vision of the great Colossus is a stone. So you have these precious metals, well, gold's a precious metal, so is silver, I don't know about iron, but... but It's a stone, it's not a metal of any sort, not even a strong metal. In human estimations, contemptible and insignificant. And yet this stone represents the everlasting kingdom, Praise the Lord. Unlike the kingdoms of men. Peter tells us it's a living stone. Yes. Yes. Amen. An old priest. And as we saw in the uh, previous frame, the stone is a familiar messianic symbol. Isaiah 28, 16. Psalm 118, 22. And the New Testament quotations of each. The stone is Christ. The living stone. the vision predicts, then, noting where the stone strikes, that the Messiah would come and inaugurate his kingdom and that kingdom would grow in the time of the fourth empire and its successors, the Iron and Pottery Fighters. And there can be no other interpretation of that fourth empire other than saying it's wrong. Mm. You've got various liberal critics who try to say that uh, it's something before Rome, and Rome has nothing to do with it. It is the teaching of the New Testament, indeed, that uh, fourth empire is wrong. I could go into that, but there's no time for that. And so that fourth empire is wrong. And its imperial phase begins with Caesar Augustus, whose birth name was Octavian, but he became sole emperor in 27 BC and he inaugurated Rome as an imperial power. The old Republican days of Rome were over and now you have emperors and he ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. He's mentioned as you're probably aware in Luke 2 and verse 1. So, let's have a look at these empires and what they look like on a map. And uh, I want you to notice where the emphasis was in the Uh, I won't show Babylon. I'll start with Medo-Persia. But I've got three maps to show you. What is shown where the centre of gravity, so to speak, is and what equally it doesn't show. Start with Medo-Persia, the chest of silver in the vision. There it is. You've got incorporated the former Babylonian empire, but it's, it extends much further. And over on the, the uh, left-hand side, you have uh, <coughs> a small toe hole, so to speak, in Greece. Persia tried to conquer Greece, but in the end, failed. First established under Cyrus the Great, who ruled this empire from 539 to 530 and extended, the, well, the empire was extended under his successors. And Xerxes the first, who ruled from 486 to 465, attempted to conquer Greece, referred to in Daniel 11 verse 2, but he failed and so the westernmost point was the bosporus just across the uh, strait from what is now eastern ball of in those days Byzantium. And so you've got uh egypt you've got uh, right over here into uh, uh, persia and afghanistan and of course the total present including uh, Judea on one side and uh, Babylon and Mesopotamia on the other right up into uh, what is now Turkey or Anatolia, the Asia Minor region. So a very large empire, but although it was more extensive, it didn't have the glory of Babylon. But the point I want to emphasize is, yes, you have this empire, but the time was not yet right. Or Messiah's coming. Yes. What about the next one? Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire which replaced it. Beginning from Macedonia he quickly conquered Greece and then in the year 334 he pushed over into Anatolia what is now Turkey and swept down the coast into Egypt and over into Mesopotamia and further east. There you've got the map, And it shows the path that Alexander took. One of the interesting things is there are four cities that he founded and named after himself. Alexandria over in Egypt on the Delta. Alexandria here. Another Alexandria here, the modern Kandahar. And right up here, Alexandria Escutay, the last Alexandria. <laughs> but, he reached as far as the Indus Valley, just here. And his soldiers refused to go any further. They were hundreds of miles from home, though rebelled. So Alexander had to trace back to Babylon, and there he died in the year 323. But still, the time was not right for God's son to appear. Amen. We've got to think in terms of a long haul when it comes to the things of God. You know, our lives are short. Our lives are about a breath. for told in Psalm 90. God takes the long-term view and uh, his purposes work out over that longer term. We've got to be patient. And then Alexander's empire broke up into warring segments. Alexander's death led to a mad scramble by his generals. Each one in their particular section of the empire. And by 300 BC, this was the picture. You have two of the generals over there in the west. We can forget about them because the two main ones are this one, Seleucus, and me very quickly lost this part of it and then Ptolemy in Egypt, and the, the successors of each. You see, empires had come and gone. But still, all the time it was not yet right for Christ to come. But meanwhile, the uh, successors of Salus and the successors of Ptolemy with each other, and that's what Daniel 11 is all about. I won't go into the details there. But the time was even now, not yet bright. Now you have Rome, which conquered all. 63 BC, as I mentioned, Pompey conquered Jerusalem and incorporated Judea into the growing empire and at the same time finished off what was left of the Greek empire. And then, and I want you to notice this, the decade of the 50s BC, Julius Caesar ventured into Gaul, what is now France, and even crossed the English Channel into Britain. Why it's giving, I'll explain in just a moment. Finally, in 31 BC, at the Battle of Actium, Anthony and Cleopatra, who saw the famous movie, epic movie, years ago, with Elizabeth uh, Taylor and Richard Burton, Anthony and Cleopatra. Uh, it was broadly historical, but always remember, Hollywood is not in the business of teaching history. Yeah. It's in the business of entertainment. Uh, but with that annexation of Egypt, Rome now ruled much of the known world. And I want you to notice in particular that the time was now ripe for God's beloved son to enter this world and redeem it. Yes. You see, Rome's ascendancy came as Daniel's prophecy had forecast. Observe the fulfilment. Christ would come and his kingdom would begin in the time of the fourth empire. That was the fullness of time, and so it proved. What God announced to Nebuchadnezzar, back in roughly uh, 604, 603 BC, something like that, he brought to pass. 500 years later that was the time god sent his son into the world and so christ entered a very different world than what we see as we leave the old testament which was a persian world now it's a roman world and why was this the right time well we can observe quite a number of things. First of all, there were roads and communications like had never been seen before. A whole network of paved roads, flanked with drainage ditches and footpaths which linked communities and provided efficient means of transport for armies, for officials, civilians and for traders. You can still see some of them today. Up near Philippi, or um, Kabbalah, the ancient Neapolis, there are portions of the Via Ignatia. Via Ignatia. And it went from Neapolis, or the modern Kabbalah, on the Aegean Sea, right across northern Greece, or Macedonia, to the Adriatic Sea. A long way. And that was just one of many. The whole empire was linked by these roads. Likewise in Britain, and they were still being used through the Middle Ages, and even today, who's been who comes from or has been to England? The A4, which goes more or less up the uh, the east coast. It doesn't hug the coast, that follows the path of the old Roman road of Watling Street. The Romans knew how to build roads in a way that the modern politicians seem to like. lack. <laughs> <laughs> you only have to go over the city streets and see what I mean. they are in a terrible condition. And yet these roads have lasted for two millennia. There was an international language. Alexander had brought Greek culture to the East and made common Greek the language of all conquered peoples. And while local tongues still indeed prevail in the provinces, but everybody could speak Greek. It's like today when just about anywhere you go in the world, you can always get away with English. Through Europe, everybody speaks English. And then, there was political stability, order, the rule of law. There had been a long period of civil upheaval during the first century BC, particularly after the assassination of Julius Caesar, and so Augustus Becoming emperor imposed the Roman peace. but that meant law and order, justice, the rule of law. The emperor cult, where people had to worship the emperor as a god, that wasn't in place yet. And so there was religious toleration for Jews and all the many cults around the place. There was freedom. But here is a factor that is so often overlooked as to wipe was the fullness of time. Unlike its predecessors, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire incorporated Europe. That's why those campaigns of Julius Caesar are important. It's a turning point in history. The Roman Empire incorporated Europe and this was in the plan of God. You see, you look at the book of Acts, as Paul moved, this is Acts 16, as Paul moved through Asia Minor, he was aiming at Bithynia over in the northeast. But we're told the Holy Spirit didn't let him and it directed him to Macedonia Across into Europe. And so Paul's missionary endeavours thereafter moved westward. First of all, Rome, he says in the opening chapter of Romans, I long to come to you in Rome. And then further on in Romans, he talks about going to Spain. And tradition has it good early tradition. That he did actually go to Spain, evangelise Spain, and then came back, installed Titus there in Crete, and installed Timothy in Ephesus. But then he was arrested again and suffered martyrdom. But as a result, Europe thereafter has been the cradle of Christianity, and in recent centuries a missionary powerhouse to the world. The fact that Europe is no longer, or no longer has a Christian base, again, the prophecy of the providence of God, I believe in the light of Daniel's visions, that that itself is a sign of the soon coming end. The decline of Europe. <coughs> which has been the creator of Christianity and is no longer. But that's another story. Hopefully I'll share that with you on another occasion. And so God sent forth His Son, we're told. God had planned this in His eternal counsels. Peter says, He was predestined before the foundation of the world and has been revealed in this present time for your sake. What is prophecy? It's a pre-announcement of God's plan. And that's what Daniel 2 is about. A pre-announcement of God's plan. But God did not appoint an ordinary member of the human race and then exalt him to a high status he did this with cyrus yes but cyrus was a man but god sent his beloved son Amen. Glory to god. the eternal pre-existent son who shares the fullness of deity the second person of the holy trinity He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as we read in Revelation 30. But he appeared, as Peter says, in these last times for our sake. And yet, Paul, and all the apostles with him for that matter, Paul is at pains to stress that this was real history. For him, quite recent history. And in the Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles, we meet with real characters and events from history. I've mentioned some of them already. God sent the Son into this space-time world to accomplish a real redemption, which no one else could accomplish. Man was sunk in sin and nature's night And only the Son of God made flesh could rescue man from this same condition and bring a real redemption and a real eternity. So he says there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. And then he was born of a woman in what many have seen as the great miracle of the ages. The eternal word, the pre-existent Son of God, who shared the fullness of deity. He became man as Jesus of Nazareth and walked this earth as the humble servant of the Lord, as the man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief. Some have seen the virgin birth in this this line, uh, born of a woman, but I think this is stretching things a bit. Jesus said the same thing about John the Baptist, Matthew 11 verse 11, and people in general born of woman. He wasn't there by saying that John the Baptist was born of a virgin. That uh, <coughs> no, was just a familiar statement, born of a woman. But it is a statement about the Incarnation, the Word made flesh. And the Incarnation was the means to the end of redemption. The prerequisite for that task of redemption. It was not itself the accomplishment of redemption. Having been born into this world, incarnate in human flesh, he thereby taught, suffered, died a cruel death and then rose again. The incarnation is not an end in itself. It is a step along the way to that work of redemption. That said, the Incarnation was essential to his role as a true mediator. Christ as the Son of God is God manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, I'll just mention this in passing. a lot of modern Bibles that don't have God manifest in the flesh. Uh, and it's based on a faulty reading of an ancient manuscript, which admittedly is badly faded in many parts. I've seen the manuscript, although not open at that particular text uh, in the British Library in London. Uh, It is indeed badly faded, but modern techniques have been able to reveal uh, (coughs) that particular line and it does indeed read, God manifest in the flesh, praise the Lord. And so, as God, He is the true mediator, but He is God and man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, First Timothy 2 verse 5. So the Incarnation is both a miracle and a mystery, which we are to adore, but not try to solve. If anyone knows anything about the early history of the church, a lot of it is about the efforts of various people to try and solve the mystery. and They've always got themselves into trouble trying to do so. They came up with heresies. Yeah. You don't do that. You adore the mystery. You preserve the mystery. You worship him who is God and man together. And uh, I cannot go past the words of Charles Wesley, and people who know me will say, oh, here goes Mario, right in Wesley again. That earth and heaven combine, angels and men agreed To praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Yes. He laid his glory by, he wrapped him in our clay, unmarked by human eye, the latent God in light. Infant of days he here became for the mild Emmanuel's name. Unsearchable the love that hath our Saviour brought, the graces far above all man or angels thought. Suffice for us that God, we know our God, is manifest in love." Words by Charles Wesley on the incarnation. These gospel facts have their implications. Although I don't want to dwell on the negative and that's why I put it first so that we can move beyond that and draw on the positive but, but let me make this negative point. Let us resolve to reject the commercial rat race of Christmas. Not easy I know, not easy at all, particularly with, those, with our families, our immediate families or grandchildren whatever, but yet We've got to face the fact that so much of it is pagan, trees, balls, Santa Claus. But at core, what we see at this time of the year is the world using this sacred event of Christ's entry into the world as an occasion to make money. A cause for merchandise. Now, Jesus had something to say and do about that kind of thing uh, when he, you read, two occasions. First of all, at the outset of his ministry, John two, he came up to the temple there of these money changers. He kicked them out, overthrew their tables, and told them to get lost. <coughs> Do not make my father's house, he says, a house of merchandise. But I can guarantee you, the next day they were back. And so when he came up to his triumphal entry. For his last week, there they were again, and again he kicked them out. Now, what do we do? How do we come to terms with this? Well, I would say that we're in a happy position here in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa too for that matter, because it is summertime at the end of the year, and so Christmas is really as much an end-of-the-year affair as it is a Christian affair. Mm. It's the gateway to the summer holidays. And so, I would say by all means, by gifts, to uh, thank people for their kindness, their service, their friendship throughout the year. But give, not expecting anything in return. Just give for the sake of giving. And of course give gifts to your children. Nothing wrong (laughs) with that. The Lord says even evil people give good gifts to their children. Of course give give, good gifts to your children. But think of it, I would suggest as much as an end of the year occasion as a Christian occasionally, I'll leave it at that. Positively, however, meditate on the great scriptures which speak of our Lord's incarnation. Isaiah 7 and 9, we sang a chorus about uh, the wonderful counsellor, etc. Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, the birth narratives and the gospels. The great passage. Uh, in Philippians 2, Hebrews, particularly chapter 1, and the visionary passage in Revelation 12 of the birth of the male child who would rule the nations. Meditate on these passages. Thirdly, you must be clear on the person of Christ, not only on the cross and the atonement. And I fear that evangelicals have often been remiss here they jumped in on the atonement, on the cross, and in, in many ways, fair enough. But we cannot preach the cross without being clear of the Christ, about the Christ of the cross, who he is. Otherwise, you finish up as liberals do, that he's just a man who suffered a, martyr, a martyr's death and nothing more. I take my cue here from again the, the early church, it hammered out the issue of Christ's twofold nature, Christ's deity. Then and only then did the church start looking at the issue of the atonement. So we must be clear on the person of Christ. We must draw from that legacy that has been set for us in ancient times. Fourthly, while Christmas has been an occasion for evangelism, or can be an occasion for evangelism, by all means use it to that end. But promote Christ as the Son of God and the Saviour at all times. All times. Not just in December. I think you know what I'm getting at there. Finally, contemplation of Christ's first coming must also point us to the hope and expectation of his second coming he will come not as the babe of Bethlehem of course but as the Lord of glory coming in power and great glory as the stone cut without hands who shall destroy the kingdoms of this world come complain about politicians and the the uh, collapse in many ways of the rule of law in our country, well, point our eyes headward to the coming King who put things right and put them right forever. So i leave it there.